Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking, and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. I'm very pleased today to welcome Yunai Pasquale to the podcast. Yunai is an ecological economist. He's an Iker Basque research professor at the Basque Centre for Climate Change in Bilbao in Spain and one of the lead authors of IPBES Global Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services Assessment. In 2018, he was also nominated co-chairman of the IPBES Assessment on the Values of Nature. So thank you very much, Unai, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Uh, hello there. <laughs> so, uh, Unai, um, can you tell me a little bit about your work and uh, background of the work of the Basque Centre for Climate Change? Okay. Uh, yes, I am an ecological economist. Uh, I have been working on the relationship or under, trying to understand the relationship between society, the economy and the environment for almost 30 years. I've spent uh, half of that time in the UK and different universities like York, Manchester and, and Cambridge. And then I came back home to my to my country, to the Basque country, and I'm now working at an institute, a research institute, uh, which is concerned about the social and economic aspects mainly of climate change. Uh, so I, as an ecological economist, I'm also working on climate change issues at the moment. Okay, okay. Very interesting. Uh, social and economic aspects, um, I guess aspects that are getting a bit more attention now. Um, hopefully, as as there seems to be some momentum, at least, on, on, on this whole polarization or um, that people are, are seem to be willing to accept, certainly in Europe, and, and I think in the United States, more the state of real state of affairs. So start to think more seriously about it. What's on your mind right now? Uh, you've been, as you say, uh, doing this for 30 years. Um, the, the landscape has changed recently. At the same time, we're getting uh, more and more uh, information about just how uh, dramatic the, the decline in the, in the uh, biodiversity, uh, the ecological impact, and, 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 and indeed on, on the climate change itself. So I'm just wondering, are there one or two things that are particularly on your mind at the moment? Well, yes, there are a few things on my mind that uh, they have been developing uh, over over some time. I would say first, uh, it is more clear than ever that uh, what we call the environment or the natural environment is not something which is out there somewhere distant uh, as an object. Uh, we are part of it. Um, so this positionality of the human being or society as a whole uh, with regard to the environment, to nature, is something that scientists have been trying to grapple for a long time. And depending how we we understand that positionality, of course, the way we understand uh, the economy, for example, changes can change dramatically. So this is one of the things that um, I'm trying to to do uh, research about. Is like how can we improve uh, this. Uh, scientific um, uh, endeavors, our main hypothesis, our main questions about the reason why we are in the state that we are with regard to this environmental crisis, the global environmental crisis. Uh, and my point is that it is as social as environmental. So it is not possible to disentangle the two and the two have to be understood together. So, for example, if we are trying to understand what kinds of economic policies or economic instruments or economic drivers are behind the environmental crisis. We also need to understand in which ways society um, interacts with economy, in which ways individual behavior uh, has to be understood as part of a much more complex social structure, uh, what we call institutions, which are basically the norms and the rules by which society governs itself and its relationship with the other and that other might also be understood as that environmental issue uh, whatever it is whether it's biodiversity whether it's climate whether it's water 
so all the biotic and abiotic features that we understand as, as nature. So um, that leads me also to try to understand uh, the situation about biodiversity nowadays. Uh, we know that biodiversity, the same as climate or climate change, is in a very kind of um, vulnerable situation, a perilous situation, which is already impacting the lives and the well-being of millions and millions of people. And, and it's going to keep on doing this for, for uh, many, many years, decades, centuries, and millennia, if we're still here. So it's just trying to understand the this complex interrelationships between uh, individuals, communities of individuals, basically society, and and the wider or broader system, which is nature and is the environment. And, and those kinds of relationships are very complex. Uh, and they are complex because we understand them in very different ways. We value them or we give importance to them in very different ways. Uh, it's not just because of culture. It's also because of, as I said before, how we position ourselves within this broader uh, uh, system that we call nature. Yes, yes. Now, I'd like to come back to, to uh, later the, the, the social question. Um, I'm just wondering, uh, maybe just to set the scene a little bit, um, I mean, how bad do you think the situation is today? With respect to nature, and as I said, nature and society, they can, we cannot disentangle them easily. I think we are in a very uh, vulnerable position. I think that the way society is structuring itself, the way society is looking at technology, the way society is looking at the economic system, the way we are interacting as social beings, among ourselves, uh, people from different cultures, from different countries, um, is um, unprecedented. The way we are doing it has not happened, uh, I would say, in the same way uh, ever. So the globalization, the role of uh, information, all of these things are creating very emergent properties or emergent situations that we need to understand how to uh, how to tackle them. Um, we we think it is easy that we can basically, for example, use the social media as if it was some neutral technology. But of course, social media or, or any other information technology or any other hard technology is having an influence in the way we, we live our lives and therefore the ways we relate to nature. And I think that, uh, for example, one, one, um, one thing that is happening is we are creating a, a world which is becoming more urbanized. Um, so it's more and more people are living in bigger and bigger cities, which is creating some kind of um, distance or disconnection with pretty basic uh, features and, and processes of nature. Uh, if we go to big cities and we ask kids or even adults about, about very basic things about nature, uh, their point of reference is usually uh, the TV or the social media, and the, a lot of people are not having direct a direct connection, a direct experience with nature. This is something that is is quite concerning um, because uh, it's not that we are physically disconnecting from nature, but we are cognitively disconnecting with nature as well. So it is very difficult to um, to find solutions. Uh, in the way that we we can find more respectful, uh, a more sort of um, friendly ways of, of how nature and society should relate to each other, uh, if a, a bigger and bigger share of the of the population is being disconnected both cognitively and physically from nature. So this is one of the reasons I think uh, why uh, finding and agreeing upon solutions to, to protect nature, which is basically the, the basic fabric of, of life on Earth, including ours. This is why it's, so it's, it's, it's becoming also so difficult. And of course, there are many more reasons why. But I would say, coming back to your, to your question, that, uh, for example, in terms of climate change, in terms of biodiversity loss, the certification, acidification of oceans, uh, the, the problem of plastic pollution everywhere, which is becoming also kind of a crisis. I think all of these things are, are becoming a big problem, all of them individually. And if we take all of them together, then we are facing a huge challenge for humanity. And my, 
my my impression, my my I believe that uh, we are not responding as intelligently and rationally and as fast as we should be responding to this big big challenge that humanity is facing. Yes, it's very interesting. You know, you, you mentioned the social and economic. To to what extent does um, your analysis go beyond a a, a analysis which says uh, which highlights? Uh, a certain set of economic, a uh, certain economic model, a certain, shall we say, neoliberal consensus, whatever you might call it. To what extent do you go beyond that? To what, how much uh, explanation, explicatory power do you get? Do we get from looking at it through that lens? And what other elements do you think need to be introduced? Okay, well, that's a very interesting question because um, I think you are pointing at. Um, at a big issue, which is economics is much broader than what a lot of people think about economics, uh, like markets or the stock market or jobs or inflation or bonds and the financial market, right? Economics is basically a way to, to, to try to understand how, how people, how individuals and communities as a whole interact uh, and how they, they organize themselves, how they allocate resources in a way that makes them happy, in a way that provides them with a livelihood, in a way that uh, uh, increases or enhances their well-being. Uh, and of course, this all allocation issue is what economics is about. And of course, allocation is not just about uh, not wasting resources, which is a very important thing. I mean, because scar uh, resources are scarce. Uh, by definition, almost all resources are scarce, even natural, naturally renewable resources. If we don't take, uh, uh, if we don't use them uh, properly, they, they can become non-renewable very, very easily, so exhaustible. Uh, but it's not just the allocation of resources, it's also the distribution of the resources. So it's about optimization, so how we optimize the allocation of resources and how we distribute them in society in a way that society as a whole feels that this is just, that is fair, and we can live up with this type of allocation uh, in a way that we feel good about it. Uh, um, so this, these two issues about distribution and allocation are two fundamental aspects of economics. And of course, markets, for example, is one way of how we interrelate among ourselves. Uh, markets can be pretty good and they can work sometimes very good in terms of optimizing uh, the way resources should be allocated uh, using prices as a signal, but markets are really bad and they don't care much about uh, issues about fairness or justice. Uh, or social uh, social justice, or even uh, if we can even talk on, on a climate climatic level on climate justice, no, or environmental justice. So markets become, or a market can become uh, an instrument to allocate resources. But of course, institutions have to be put in place, norms and rules that are determined by by um, by by how we we feel that we want to interrelate among ourselves how what, what do we mean by fairness what do we mean by justice and those kinds of things are embedded in the values that uh, create those norms and 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 rules and those norms and rules can sometimes be rather implicit and tacit and they become like kind of habitualization we do things uh, in a habit mode, because that's the thing, that's the way we think uh, we have to behave uh, because of culture, education, etc. And there are other much more explicit institutions, and those are policies, no, uh, fiscal policies, monetary policies, uh, health-related policies, etc. And those are usually put into legislation um, and other kinds of of, of uh, rules and norms, right? So the connection between um, economics um, and people have to look at not only markets, uh, but also at those institutions without which markets would not have any sense. Yeah. So, so I think it is um, important to realize that, yeah, per, uh, some of the main drivers of biodiversity loss nowadays, or some of the main drivers of uh, uh, climate change, have to do with the way we are using economics. Uh, my opinion is that um, the, over the last, I would say, 40 years, more or less, since the 80s, uh, uh, there has been a, um, an ideology which has determined the way 
we we portray markets as the, the best way of creating interactions about among humans so humans not so much as citizens but humans as consumers and and i think this is at the core uh, reason of why we are having some of these main challenges that i just mentioned before uh, i think is uh, i would say that that understanding the market as the primary or a superior form of interaction among humans is one of the main reasons uh, why we are in the in, in this kind of very complex situation and challenging situation with regard to how to how the environment is already impacting back on us yes yes i i, I and i'm interested also in this uh, the, the the social aspect as well i mean um to what degree uh, that gets that you know the social uh, social society as it were gets hollowed out by uh, you know a a market driven society and you know I think Margaret Thatcher was famous for saying there's no such thing as society but you talked about the social um, uh, several times earlier in the discussion and I'm just wondering what 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 are the key ideas there that to think about because um and how well how well developed are these ideas um at, at the moment you know there's, there's many dimensions to the problem and 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 becoming more aware of the actual scale of the the environmental problems and starting to look at the kinds of economic policies and and government policies indeed i don't know how well developed and tied in the social perspective is well, that's also a very interesting question because I, I don't think we can understand uh, individual behavior, uh, individual needs and wants and values if we don't understand that those are embedded in a much wider web. And that web is basically society and, and the culture that uh, society uh, brings with it. Uh, so I, I would say that individuals and society are co-evolving all the time. Sometimes they evolve very rapidly. Sometimes the needs and wants and demands of, of people and individuals and collectives uh, change very quickly. And some other times uh, they change very slowly because some of the of the main values take a long time to change. Um, so, so I don't think there is any way to try to understand um, the main sustainability challenges that we are facing if we are only looking at the individual as the king or the queen of the game. I think we are social beings and many of the most important values uh, in terms of, of virtues, in terms of uh, yeah, or, or moral, um, yeah, those kind of moral underpinning values that uh, glue society. Uh, which could be related to, I don't know, uh, religion. It could be issues around identity. It could be issues around many other things. Uh, those are fundamental pillars of, of uh, how each individual, each of us, um, create expectations about what is a good life, uh, how we should live our lives, how our children should have opportunities uh, in the future, etc. I, I don't think those kinds of very entrenched values, um, this which I think are shared values in, in a big part of, of society. And I would say some of those values are universal values as well, uh, like uh, justice and equity and fairness, right? Uh, even if we might interpret them culturally in slightly different ways, but I don't think we can understand uh, the connections of, of humans and, and nature through the economy or through technology or through any other vector which is uh, sort of void or disconnected from those very basic value systems. And I think values are very, very important. Um, and this is also going back to one of your questions. This is one one of the things that is also keeping me awake quite, quite a lot uh, over many nights, which is trying to understand how uh, some values are connected to the way we relate to nature and how those values change over time and, and the implication of those changes um, in, in terms of, of uh, the opportunities that we have to, to really create a more sustainable and fair future for all. No? And so, so I think going back to your last question, I think we cannot understand any um, uh, behavioral, potential behavioral response of individuals 
to I mean to the environmental crisis that we're living and uh, if, if we don't contextualize this in the wider web of society and culture. Yes, very interesting. I'd like to come back maybe to the values later if we have a little bit of time. I'm also interested, and I know you've written about, I guess, what's called ecosystem services or uh, natural capital, that whole area, the idea that, um, the come back to this question of markets, that uh, economics doesn't really take into account uh, the, the negative impact, environmental impact of economic activity and all the jargon, so-called externalities and so forth. Can you just maybe talk a little bit about uh, what ecosystem service is about and why you think uh, or, or do you think it, it, it can be helpful in terms of uh, dealing with some of the problems we're facing? Sure. I mean, ecosystem services, um, that notion, the idea is a metaphor, basically. So what we are trying to say, uh, what we are trying to convey with, with this metaphor, with this idea, is that ecosystems, whether they are terrestrial, uh, aquatic, aquatic or uh, marine, uh, basically they are offering, uh, I mean, so many different types of benefits to humans, uh, also to, to, uh, to those living organisms in those ecosystems. But, but if we are taking an anthropocentric perspective, so it's like how ecosystems affect us, uh, what is the impact of a good uh, or a bad ecosystem in terms of how healthy that ecosystem is, it is very clear and we have plenty of, of scientific uh, information and consensus that um, uh, ecosystems provide so many good things uh, for our well, uh, well-being and well-being understood in a multifaceted perspective, a multidimensional one. Is well-being does not only have to do with um, the capacity we have to consume things, all kinds of things for which we need money. Uh, and therefore, if we need money, perhaps we have to sell things like uh, lots of things that we can produce. And most of the things that we can produce directly or indirectly come from natural resources. So that's a very, very direct way of, of understanding how nature affects well-being through our capacity to produce things, to sell them there, and, and therefore to get an income and con keep on consuming things that we really need or we think we need. But ecosystems provide many other what we call benefits or service, like uh, directly through, uh, through our health, that, uh, mental health or physical health. But even going beyond that, I mean, uh, ecosystems uh, and the way uh, ecosystems regulate very complex ecological processes like soil formation uh, so that we can get real crops out of the soil or, or uh, the recycling of, of toxic pollutants uh, so that we, we are not polluted all the time by, by toxic waste because nature also has the capacity to filter some of those toxic uh, elements or, or how we can have a good quality water uh, and, and for that, uh, ecosystems are terribly important. Uh, forests um, uh, are very important because they suck the water, they produce the water, uh, or at least they, they are part of the water cycle. And, and uh, the amount of water we can get, uh, how it regulates the flow of that quantity and that quality uh, comes from the health of the, of the ecosystem. Uh, pollination, okay, so we need pollinators to pollinate our crops. Without them, we would be in a very, very bad situation. So there are so many of these different types of benefits that uh, nature provides us directly and sometimes indirectly that we call those ecosystem services. They are services that we use and, and we use them, as I say, directly and sometimes without noticing them indirectly. Uh, and and those, those, are the, those kinds of benefits are called services. And I would say that this concept really gained traction. Uh, at the end of the last century. So basically in the 90s, uh, lots of economists who were working on environmental issues, like what well, they are called ecological economists or environmental economists, um, teamed up with uh, biologists or uh, bio uh, people or scientists who, who were trying to understand some of the functioning of ecosystems and how ecosystems affect people. So I think there was a very interesting uh, connection among those two types of scientists. And, and they came up with this, with this metaphor, with this name. No? 
uh, and, and one of the of the points of using this uh, idea or metaphor is that nature provides many things um, and most of those things are provided for free. Yeah, the thing is that we think that they are being provided for free and therefore we overuse them. We use them as if they were always free, uh, assuming that they would always be there. Uh, and, and the fact is, and I'm coming back to, to something that we talked about before, is that most resources are scarce and ecosystem services are also scarce because if we degrade ecosystems, we will not be able to keep on having uh, kind of or, or the, uh, the flow of benefits or the flow of those services over and over and over again and, and how those things could be distributed in society. So, so this idea of ecosystem services really uh, I started to to gain some traction at the, at the 90s, at the end of the 90s. Uh, and then, of course, there was a very, very important milestone, which was uh, the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment, where the, this was a, an initiative that was uh, run uh, by, by thousands of scientists uh, who were trying to portray what is the status and the trends and the potential future scenarios of all those different types of ecosystem services which affect uh, the, the quality of life of humans. Right? So in more or less in 2005, the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment was published. And then there has been a tremendous uh, increase in, uh, in the scientific endeavor about trying to map, uh, trying to understand potential trade-offs among different types of ecosystem services, trying to value in different ways those ecosystem services, whether through money indicators or in economic ways or through other indicators, uh, to try to uh, first to understand what are those human nature relationships, so, so how humans benefit from nature and what are the implications of the degradation of ecosystems in the first place. Secondly, I would say that the ecosystem service uh, notion uh, has been quite influential in policy making. It's been a, a strategy also to try to um, convey the idea that policy should take into account ecosystem services, not only those who go through markets, uh, who create money, who create business, uh, all those what we call primary materials or primary natural resources, but, but all those ecosystem services which are also needed to keep on providing other ecosystem service and so on and so forth. This is web of life, right? So, so this, I mean, we are already like about 30 years of a lot of research, a lot of uh, scientific work around the concept of ecosystem services. Uh, and even we have an intergovernmental platform uh, on biodiversity and ecosystem services, uh, which the acronym is IPDES, uh, IPBES. So even we now have a multilateral um, uh, initiative, which is intergovernmental, where uh, government representatives, I think actually it's 133 government representatives, are interacting, interacting with thousands of scientists, literally thousands of th scientists around the world, uh, to try to um, uh, bring the idea of ecosystem services or what we also call nature's contributions to people, which is a kind of a new terminology which IPBES is, is bringing forward, um, to, to try to bring um, those ideas into decision making. So a decision making is aware of the values of, of uh, those uh, contributions from nature to people or those benefits of ecosystem services. Um, in a way that it hasn't been done over the last decades, um, I would say since the Second World War, uh, where where the the, the economic system really um, has been uh, extremely dynamic, extremely successful in creating income, uh, perhaps not so successful in distributing it, I would say, but. I mean, the, the GDP of, of most countries have been growing at an average of 2% two, uh, 2 more or less over the last few decades. And, and when something grows at, uh, at, at a rate like that, like that uh, basically the economy or the scale of the economy doubles in, in a matter of, of uh, just a few decades. No? So we see that the amount of income that we are generating has been massive. At the same time, the degradation of ecosystems over more or less the same time frame has been also great. And, and the idea of bringing the uh, ecosystem services 
uh, this notion into decision making is just one way to realize that, uh, for example, economic growth or job creation or whatever other economic objective cannot be disentangled from nature. And one way, one way to, to connect the dots is through the, the term ecosystem services or nature's contributions to people. Right, right. A big, big area. And as you say, a, a tremendous momentum growing around that. Um, connected, uh, uh, part of it you, you mentioned, and, and, and there's been quite a bit of talk about this, um, is, is the idea of, I guess, valuing the, the ecosystem services or, you know, what some people call putting a price on nature in some way. What, what do you think of, of, of that idea and, and how uh, deep, is, it deeply, uh, uh, where, where are we with that? Well, we are, I would say, uh, not in a mess, but we are in a big debate. And, and this debate has been going on for a long time. So I think it is important to differentiate that the value of something is not the same as the price of, of that thing. Okay, so the price is basically, a, it should be at least a signal of a scarcity. Yeah, uh, which is a, which is a signal that markets, markets use uh, demand and supply of things. Uh, only meet when whenever there is a price. Yeah, so the price is a, a pretty good signal uh, for certain things, but the value of something is not necessarily the same as its price. I mean, uh, I mean, we could go to very philosophical debates about what is the value of of, of a human life. Uh, so people would say, well, that's infinite. Uh, but then medical doctors say, yeah, but if we have to save a life and we have scarce medical resources. How do we value uh, which life do we with, with, do we save first, or do we put our uh, investments uh, to to save either a life of a child or a life of an adult of an old person? So these are very philosophical debates. But basically, what this transmits is that the value of something is the same as its price because nobody says that uh, a human life should have a price but uh, we can say that uh, well perhaps when when we have to save a life perhaps we have to look at i don't know different ways of valuing somebody's life i mean it's a very ethical and com very complicated um example yeah but if we, we can I mean, this is equally complex if we say what is the value of, of different environmental features, what is the value of biodiversity, what is the value of a species, is, is it just its price? Of course not. I mean, the price only reflects a very, usually a very tiny part of the, of the entire value of a thing, especially if, if that thing affects many people in many, many different ways. So I would say that with value, we should not be talking about the value, but uh, the diversity of value of anything. So anything, uh, if we're talking about the species, uh, we're talking about, uh, I don't know, any, any natural resource, natural feature that we care about, we can look at it from very different uh, angles about how we understand what we mean by value. Uh, we can have an economic value, but uh, we can have, I mean, cultural values, identity values. Uh, we can have uh, health values. We can have values which are related to, uh, to, to how we understand life in, in, uh, in this planet. I mean, if we talk to an indigenous person, in the Amazon, but not. We don't have perhaps to go uh, very, very far. I mean, uh, there are many people who who understand their relationship to nature in ways that are not easily connected to any term in economics, and even less uh, to a term like a price. Yeah. So, so I think when we talk when we talk about the value of of nature or the values about nature, we have to really uh, understand and acknowledge and recognize that there are a diversity of values out there and that different people have different types of values or attach different types of values for very different reasons. And this is, I guess, also one of the main problems that we are having, that we, we are not recognizing all that diversity of values that people put on the environment or associate with, with nature. And, and the, the price as a form of value is becoming an extremely dominant way of understanding the value of nature. And I think that is also one of the core problems that we have. And this is why we are 
oversimplifying so much um, what what is the the worth of nature for humankind. Um, and and again, I think this is one of the main reasons we are in uh, facing this huge. Uh, sustainability challenge or unsustainability challenge, I would say, is because uh, the money or, or an economic value is taking precedence um, before any other types of, of values. Uh, and, and there are many, unfortunately, many policies uh, and decision-making structures which are uh, dependent on this idea of the economic value of anything rather than the multiple and diverse values of things, right? And and this is the same with, it goes with people, it goes with societies, it goes with human rights, it goes with nature, it goes with many uh, basic aspects that, that, we, that we should care about. Yeah, it's very interesting you talk about that. Can, can you give me an example there? When you talk about the economic values, um, associated with nature, you mean in in the sense that the market, uh, how the, how the market looks at them? Because you're talking about all of these uh, biodiversity and things like that, which which um, to what extent ha has anybody really successfully put a, a an economic value on that? And and um, to what extent would would that actually be helpful? I mean, you, you you're mentioning, as you say, quite a wide range of values for different stakeholders, different people, and so forth. Uh, and yet, this drive to uh, to put some economic values on 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 biodiversity um, continues. And 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 I guess, as as you say, you know, there's an argument that if something is free, that it gets overused. So, to some degree, you can understand in in at, at one level what that's about. Yes, um, of course. I mean, uh, I mean, one could use any any kind of example. But let's imagine. I mean, in I mean, at our in all our villages and around cities. I mean, we have small patches of forest and farmland. Yeah. So imagine that we say, okay, we would like to know what is the value of this forest, or we would like to know uh, if we reduce the 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 area of this forest, how much would we lose? Um, uh, what would be the impact? What would be the cost? Or, uh, or, or the opposite. If we wanted to conserve one more hectare of forest, what would be the benefit? Okay. So the benefit or the services or the contributions of nature, those could be reduced to an economic value. Uh, the, the interesting thing of being able to calculate what is the, the extra benefit for people from having an extra hectare of, of land in a good state, uh, forest or farmland. Uh, of course, we have um, many different approaches and methods to calculate or those those types of economic values. With of course, there's always a range of uncertainty around the final estimate. But we can uh, we we have developed uh, certain techniques which uh, can approximate um, the economic value of of that extra hectare of forest, for example. But of, so this this would be useful at least to say look um if we increase this hectare uh, sorry this forest by a hectare uh then this would be the extra benefit i don't know for the treasury uh, in terms of the market uh or if we degraded that uh hectare well this would be the cost so at least we know that it's not for free um so that's that's a rational for valuing things in in an economic way. Now the point is that uh, of course different people, as you say, would value that extra hectare in very different ways. Even economically, it's not the same of being a farmer uh, who depends on the pollinators that are in that forest, or we are tourists that we love going for a walk in that uh, forest, or we need the water that that forest provides. Um, and so households benefit from from this sort of the flow of water. So of course, depending on, on what kind of, of uh, benefit that we get, we would get different uh, value estimates in terms of uh, the economic value. One would say, okay, well, let's aggregate all those different types of values and come up with what we call the total economic value of that additional hectare. And this is something that we have been doing as economists for 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 a few decades already, hoping that uh, policymakers would take notice of this, and whenever they do some kind of cost-benefit analysis of of any uh, associated with any any policy decision, they would take into account the costs and benefits of the impact on nature, um, also in economic ways. Well, I would say, and this is my my opinion, of course, 
that we have been not so successful in in convincing policymakers that this is the way to calculate the overall costs or overall benefits of adding or uh, reducing a hectare of a forest as a very simple example. And of course, we could use any other example at a much bigger scale. Uh, what I would say is that uh, policymakers realize that uh, different stakeholders have different interests. And those interests are associated, associated with different types of values, not only economic values. There could be, as we said, uh, as a farmer, I mean, people might relate to that piece of land in ways that cannot be captured in economics because it, it might be related to their identity or they might be related to how they care about uh, that patch of land because it is part of their heritage or they have a responsibility as farmers, as a community to, to conserve that piece of land. And, and that's something that cannot be captured in economics. It has another dimension, another value dimension. Um, uh, the other people might consider that the value of the species that inhabit that additional hectare forest uh, is a value that is independent of our perception of how useful those species are for us, that species have their own intrinsic value and they have a right to exist regardless of us humans. So we can see that there are all these different types of or, or dimensions of values, uh, some of which what we say uh, in um, in, in our in the kinds of, of research that we do is uh, we use a word which is uh, a bit difficult perhaps to understand but we say that they are incommensurable is what we mean by this is sometimes we cannot compare one type of value to another type of value we don't use even the same scales we they are in, in completely different planes different different cognitive domains and it's very difficult to put all of those things together, uh, shake them and, and get an estimate or a final value, a magical value by which we can uh, tell policymakers or suggest policymakers what would be the wisest, most rational decision about that extra hectare of forest, right? So the issue of value is a very thorny one. Uh, there are not just different domains about what we mean values. Uh, but even if we only talked about economic values, different types of people would associate that additional hectare forest with very different est economic estimates, right? So how do we aggregate these estimates, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So there are many thorny questions about uh, how to, to bring a values lens into, into a decision making. My, my position is that uh, rather than trying to estimate the magical number, uh, which I don't think it exists, is, is try to recognize the different voices, to recognize the different interests around that extra hectare of forest, as our prime example today, um, and try to understand how we can uh, bridge among those different types of values, if they can be bridged, uh, because sometimes when they cannot be bridged and we, we don't recognize all, all that diversity of values, then conflicts might arise sooner or later. And uh, even if conflict is a normal part of life, uh, we have com small conflicts all the time in, in every household, every city, every country. That's part of who we are as humans. We live with conflict. Uh, there are certain conflicts that can turn nasty. And those are the kinds of conflicts that we need to either avoid or mitigate. And I think one way to do that is to try to bridge among the different values that we care about. Um, and this is something that, um, that, that scientists and sustainability scientists, uh, I think, uh, will be doing uh, over the next decades. Uh, so moving from what we call monistic ways of understanding values, which means like one just looking at one value dimension, which whether it's economics or whether it's culture or whether it's whatever it is, and try to look at the different dimensions of values and try to create those bridges, those methodologies to try to understand how we can tackle together those different uh, and sometimes conflicting uh, values uh, around nature. And I think this is the only way we can uh, create uh, a healthy uh, social transformation uh, that is going to be 
um, connected to nature in a in a fair and sustainable way. That's fascinating, uh, and it seems to go into a, a whole other domain, I guess, uh, in terms of you know different stakeholders and, and a whole question about governance and how these different uh, stakeholders and so forth interact. And I guess, you know, economics of <laughs> is political economy. Um, to what extent is there, are there uh, interesting ideas? Do you think new ideas or, or powerful ideas emerging? Uh, as you say, this taking into account the plurality of different uh, values and, and moving into, you know, ways of what you call bridging, but I guess which goes into this question of governance. Yeah, so so I think very shortly, I mean, the main idea um, is that trying to recognize all that diversity of values is a necessary component of the, any solution to sustainability, but it's not sufficient. I think it's governance. It is the kinds of institutions, the norms and rules that we create for ourselves. That has to be connected to the idea of recognizing values, because we might be willing to recognize all those values, but if then we don't go a step further and, and so make that knowledge operational in decision making uh, through specific governance approaches, then we are stuck uh, and we might even be extremely frustrated. Um, so, so I think it is governance, it's like how we create the the systems by which we take decisions uh, that are democratically um, uh, how to say uh, approved or 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 put forward by by a by a majority of a population. Uh, of course, noting that minorities also have their own values and that has to be uh, taken care of, and that's another. Uh, layer of complexity, but uh, but I, I think this more active, uh, socially active, uh, participatory approach to governance is is very important. I, I always uh, say that uh, all these small to big sustainability problems cannot be tackled from uh, either from a top-down perspective or from a bottom-up perspective. We have to find. We have to construct or build, develop some kind of new space where social participation is necessary, uh, but also we need leadership and guidance. Um, uh, uh, and, and I think that we, we need to create this uh, this new territory to, to, to tackle um, uh, sustainability issues that perhaps we have never had the 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 size of the challenge that we are facing today was say biodiversity loss and climate change and therefore we never needed that type of new space to tackle these sustainability problems i mean there are people and i have academic friends who are already thinking that there should be a chamber of decision makers which are very connected to to people and to participatory approaches which only deal with issues around sustainability and this is kind of a second chamber no? so of course this is just for many people this might sound like wow this that's crazy uh well but isn't it crazy that we're living in a world where the future is so uncertain the impacts of climate change and biodiversity loss are so huge that uh that we should try to find like new governance structures that uh, have never been put in place until now uh, we are using more or less the same governance structures in the second world war and, and even before uh in uh in a world which has changed changed tremendously so i think the political and governance structures need to uh, uh to, to evolve and we need innovation at that level it's innovation is not only at the technological level it's also at the societal level, the social level, and the governance level. And until we don't find these new kinds of agreed structures, I think it is going to be very difficult to, to tackle uh, the main sustainability challenges that we have given the political cycles that are too short. Uh, uh, many politicians are too myopic uh, to look beyond their four to five to, to perhaps even 10 uh, or eight year cy political cycles now when, when we know that sustainability is a long term uh, issue and uh, which goes over and over generations. So 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 I think this idea of, of bringing diversity of voices, diversity of values, that society really participates in decision making 
um, and that we also need some kind, of, as we always needed, some kind of leadership, strong leadership and trust on on leaders and political leaders. I think we need that 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 space that is is not yet existent. Uh, it doesn't exist, but I think we need it um, uh, dearly to to really uh, find practical solutions through a governance lens to the sustainability challenges we're facing today. Wow, that's very uh, in interesting and promising and and also uh, um, much needed um, <laughs> and something that, that uh, I guess can't be hurried as well. It, it needs to evolve. Um, I, just finally, um, I, given the tremendous importance, as you're saying, of this governance and, uh, you know, uh, uh, multifaceted uh, way of engaging not some top down or bottom up uh, but kind of some combination um i'm just wondering about the the other area that that you've been very involved with the uh, ipbes but this this question of biodiversity uh just finally i mean it's i guess it's been almost 30 years since the first global treaty to, to protect biodiversity and if you're talking about you know top down regulatory approaches and so forth how effective has that actually been and and what do you think needs to happen well, another fantastic question. So <laughs> I think uh, with biodiversity, there are very good in, very good intentions. The fact is that we are still understanding uh, biodiversity from a narrow lens. It is still is important, but it's narrow, which is the number of, of species, the different species and the, the biomass of those species. But of course, biodiversity uh, uh, goes beyond uh, the number of species. It has to do with the diversity of, of habitats, of ecosystems. And so on. It is true that uh, some of the, uh, I would say, most successful to date approaches have been through the um, establishment of, of protected areas, for example, uh, either marine or terrestrial protected areas. Um, but I, I, that also has this um, embedded notion or value that the species which inhabit those protected areas are the most important the diversity of those species so i think we still have a very species uh centered lens and it is interesting i'm not saying that's wrong uh, but i think it's it's limiting it's limiting in a way that is creating also uh many different social conflicts around those uh, in and around those protected areas with people uh, with the local people and uh, local communities who uh, who depend on those on those areas, so um, I I think there have been some developments in 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 creating sort of more just and and, and fair policies for protecting biodiversity, but I still think that we have a too uh, too much of a of a top down approach uh, about what biodiversity is, understanding what biodiversity is. I think biodiversity is a loose and fuzzy concept. Uh, as, uh, for example, IBES is now looking at biodiversity from the notion of nature, and nature is something which has different interpretations by different cultures, different people, uh, not just the number of species um, or the different types of diversity of those species. I think nature is much more than that. I think we should be uh, talking more about nature and our relationship to nature uh, and by by uh, nourishing a more healthy relationship I think that's the only way to protect that biodiversity even if we if we care about the species at the species level um, I think the, the the term biodiversity which is a very scientific term uh, is is too narrowly defined in policy in policy decisions and I think that's uh, that limiting factor is creating uh, certain big problems, uh, big social problems. And I think unless we, we tackle this head on, uh, we revisit the, what we mean by biodiversity, whether we should uh, uh, encompass a, a, a broader notion of nature and nature's contributions to people or people's relationships to nature. If we don't open up that box, uh, if we continue to, to try to protect species for the sake of protecting species with with uh, not putting people also at the center of the of the debate or at the center of the of the problem of biodiversity loss either because they they are driving biodiversity loss or because they can be uh, part of the solution to to conserving biodiversity then we are not going to advance very much and i think the metabolism of 
our economic system, which requires more and more uh, natural resources, um, is is at some point going to put all those protected areas into into a lot of pressure. And so we need to find a way that biodiversity policies, biodiversity conservation policies are much more holistic. Uh, I think policymakers call uh, sort of mainstreaming uh, biodiversity across all the sectors, all the social and economic sectors. Um, but I would just go even I would go beyond that. I think we, we need a sort of a cultural revolution in a way to try to understand biodiversity in another way. And for that, we really need to put on the table the different types of relationships with, that society has with nature, the different interests, the different types of values, as we 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 commented earlier. Uh, and until we don't do that, uh, honestly, I think uh, our sort of uh, top-down uh, policies uh, to protect biodiversity are always going to be limited. Right, right. Work to do. A lot of work to do. And I, um, what's next for you? What's what, what? What are you researching? What are you working on? Well, uh, a bit of all these different things. I think now I'm. Um, uh, co-chairing the one of the IBES um, assessments, which is on these multiple conceptualizations of values of nature and nature's contributions to people. So we are more or less midway through the production of the development of this assessment, which lasts like four years. We are, I would say, a bit more than a third into the, into the finishing line. Uh, I'm coordinating. Um, a big group of scientists, uh, more than a hundred scientists from all over the world, uh, from philosophers, so it's uh, social sciences and humanities, to sustainability scientists, economists, anthropologists, historians, etc., to try to understand all of the things that we've just talked about before, with a with a with a focus on on the diversity of values that that people. Um, associate with nature and, and and how to operationalize those things to governance structures so we can find um, innovative solutions to the sustainability challenge that, challenges that we're facing. And another thing that I'm very keen on, on working and I've been working uh, over the more than the la more than five years and I'm still very interested in pursuing is is this connection between uh, efficiency and equity in economics and the the economic how economic instruments whatever they are like payments for ecosystem services or biodiversity offsets all of these kinds of of of, um, of policy instruments that we are applying worldwide what kind of of impacts they have both on efficiency or the effectiveness or the sustain, environmental sustainability that they are designed for uh, and what sort of implications they have for, for social equity uh, uh, from, the from the different lenses about what social fairness means to different people. So that's one. And, and perhaps I would just add one more, uh, which is um, I think is important, but I think this would give us the opportunity for a whole new podcast, uh, which is uh, what is the role of of, um, of a new wave of authoritarian regimes in the world. Uh, and we can um, imagine many that are popping up like mushrooms uh, in many different countries. And what is the implication of that mushrooming of authoritarian and populist regimes um, or the implication on sustainability, on the main sustainability policies and multilateral um, institutions that need to be put in place to to tackle these global environmental problems. I think we are entering into a new terrain, which uh, since the Second World War, uh, this was uh, not mainstream. It was not um, something that had a lot of power in, in politics. And I think this is now a whole new territory, political territory that is, I think, I believe is going to have a huge impact on on the sustainability agenda, on the multilateral sustainability agenda. And I think we really need to understand the political and the sociological and the psychological um, drivers of why these sort of regimes are popping up in many places. Um, like in the US, in, in Brazil, and, and many, many other countries. Uh, and we need to understand the drivers of, of people engaging and, and, and pushing for those types of regimes. 
because if we don't do that, uh, I think that the multilateral institutions and the global policies that we might want to put in place are are going to be quite vulnerable to uh, to the I don't know to the perspectives, the values, the interests of of this uh, authoritarian, usually right wing um, uh, regime. So that's another new area that I'm opening up, and I think that's uh, a necessary one to to look at nowadays. Wow, you've got a full plate there, and I and and and, and <laughs> very much so. Tre tremendously important work, and thank you so much for joining me today and talking about uh, all the work you've been doing and and getting such precious insights into uh, these these really important questions. And uh, yeah, good luck with it all. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.